Bibles and join me in standing and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 and we'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 24. This story of course is Jesus at the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, this great Jewish feast that was celebrated once a year in September, October. Uh, But hear now as the Lord speaks to you through his holy, inspired, inerrant, and life-giving words. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled and saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because of the Sabbath? I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you condescend so low so as to speak to your people. Lord, you, in your scriptures, reveal to us truths that we can understand. And so, Lord, we do pray that your spirit would give us the ability to hear and to take to heart what you have spoken to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a principle that is often taught in preaching courses that goes something like this. A good sermon... It must have a clear construction. Uh, It must be able to communicate clearly to the listeners where you are taking them, 
and then you must actually take them to where you're taking, or you said you were going to take them. Uh, preachers often have difficulty with that as they get off in, on rabbit trails. And then by the close of the sermon, you're supposed to say, where you have been. And usually this is uh, something that's essential to uh, good preaching, that brings clarity to the truth. And I'm sure many of you students know that if you hand a paper in, a research paper into your teacher or professor, perhaps, uh, they will hand it back to you if you do not have a clear thesis. I remember in seminary, I had one uh, professor that would essentially grade uh, the students' papers by looking at the title looking at the introduction paragraph, flipping to the end, looking at the conclusion, and then he would send the papers back with a grade. Uh, He thought that you could tell everything about a paper just in those few portions, or perhaps maybe he just didn't want to spend all the time grading. Well, this is certainly a principle that the Apostle John followed in the construction of his gospel. So many of the themes that are found throughout the gospel are found In the first 18 verses in chapter 1 of John's gospel, it is his gospel in miniature form, just those 18 verses, because they strike uh, the very truths about Jesus' identity, his incarnation, even touching upon uh, doctrines relating to our salvation in him, and especially pointing out that the world is uh, found in darkness. You can find basically everything in John's gospel in the first 18 verses. Verses, And the reason why I tell you this this morning is because in John 1.11, we find a corresponding truth that uh, comes to play in this text before us. And you might remember John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. There is perhaps no greater sign of the humiliation that Christ endured for our salvation than the very fact that he came to his own people, the Jewish people, even his own brothers, and they did not turn to him in saving faith. Our text this morning sets before us in vivid color the astonishing reality that even Christ's own brothers did not believe in him. Uh, But they're not alone in their unbelief. As Jesus' ministry continues to grow and expand, so too does the confusion and opposition of the world expands and grows. And so what we want to do this morning is look at three aspects of that confusion concerning Christ in this text. His brothers are confused about his mission. The Jews, the religious leaders, are confused about his authority. And then the crowds, we'll see lastly, are confused about his works. Uh, Three different aspects of confusion, but all underscoring the same spiritual problem, and that is unbelief. Uh, But John would have us not be confused about Christ, but rather have clarity so that we believe in him. And you know this text, it opens here in John 7, 1, uh, by reminding us of the tension that has been building since John chapter 5. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In some ways, Jesus understands that he is a fugitive. 
Uh, The healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath back in John chapter 5 has enraged the religious leaders. Uh, From John 5.18 on, all the way through the rest of the gospel, uh, the religious leaders have one mission of their own uh, that they are devoted to, that they are committed to, and it's to put Jesus to death. Now, it might seem alarming that Jesus would go in hiding. You might ask, is this mere self-preservation that he would avoid Judea in fear of getting caught? He surely isn't acting as a king taking the opportunity to seize power. There might be confusion around his mission at this point. Well, his brothers were certainly confused about his strategy in bringing about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In the timeline of John's gospel, some six months have passed since uh, John chapter 6. And the feast of booths, or tabernacles, was just in a few days. Uh, Josephus, the uh, ancient Jewish historian, said that the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, the most eminent and sacred event in the Jewish calendar. Uh, We don't have uh, time to go into all the details surrounding this feast, but it was essentially a time where all of the sojourners would come from their various places where they lived to Jerusalem, and they would construct tents or tabernacles, booths, where they would stay for uh, over a week in order to remind themselves of their exodus period in the, the nation of Israel. It was a time when they would look back, of course, on how God brought them out of Egypt and that he had delivered them through the wilderness and set them in the promised land. And so this feast was all centered upon that uh, point of remembrance. Uh, You could call it perhaps a a church camp par excellence. Uh, It was a time that people actually quite enjoyed uh, spending time in these tents And Jesus' brothers viewed this as the opportune time for Jesus to make a name for himself. They have have observed that he has been remaining in some obscurity for a time. That he's been, in a way, hiding up in Galilee, not going to the center of where all the attention is, the city of Jerusalem. And so they ask, why work here in secret? If you are the light of the world, if we were in their shoes, we might say with them, don't you know the song? Let your light shine. Let this little light of mine shine. I'm going to let it shine. Don't hide it in a bushel, Jesus, but let it shine, is what his brothers are essentially saying to him. And we might have reason to say that this is perhaps just misplaced zeal. But that wasn't at the root of their plea with Jesus. They weren't testing Jesus from a perspective of trust. No, they were tempting Jesus. Jesus, if you really do these things, then show yourself to the world. If you are who you say you are, show yourself to the world. Doesn't that sound familiar? Perhaps you remember when Jesus was in the wilderness 
with Satan, and Satan was tempting him for those 40 days. What does he do? But he takes him up onto the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off. Show your power. Demonstrate your glory. You see, what Satan was promising was glory without a cross. And that's what his brothers are also saying. Show yourself to the world. Take up the glory that you deserve. And John removes all doubt that this was perhaps just misplaced zeal. Because it's in verse 5 that he says, For not even his brothers believed in him. I don't think it can get any more jarring than that. Even his brothers, according to the flesh, did not believe in him. Jesus came into the world, but the world did not Receive him. Now think about that for a moment. The human heart is so deceitful and loves darkness so much that someone can even grow up in the household of Christ where they are confronted with the reality of purity, of holiness, hearing Christ's words of authority day after day and yet walking away unmoved, walking away unchanged. Walking away unbelieving. This is the reality of sin. But it should also serve as an encouragement to us, especially to those of you who blame yourself because your families remain worldly and unbelieving. Remind yourself with these words that even Christ's own brothers did not believe. Here is perfection on display. But it's the human heart that is resistant. It's hard against the truth. And so what was just the source of their confusion? What was the basis of their unbelief? Uh, Certainly, Jesus' brothers could confess some aspects of of the Apostles' Creed, at least the ones that had happened by that point. And they knew that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, And they knew that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised one. What did they miss? What did they not understand? Well, look at Jesus' response in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You see what Jesus is doing. He's uh, almost using doublespeak with them. He's he's answering their uh, request. My time is not going to come yet to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. But as Jesus often does, he speaks at a deeper or spiritual level with them. You see, what the brothers wanted was glory. And perhaps they thought that if Jesus glorified himself by going and making a scene in Jerusalem, that they too would receive some kind of glory. That they can say, yeah, I'm his brother. Uh, They could gain attention for themselves if Jesus would just make a name for himself. But what Jesus is getting at here is that he did not come to be a king that would be served by everyone. That he would get all the attention. That he would get all the glory. Not in this present aspect of his mission. That's not how he came. He came as a humble servant. His Brothers thought that he could boost his public popularity. But Jesus knew the truth about the world. Look at verse 7. 
the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Why wasn't Jesus' mission about public popularity? Because he came as the one who spoke truth into darkness. He was that great light that shined on the darkness, and the darkness hated him because of it. There have been attempts made by Christians over the years that have seemingly missed this truth. This crucial aspect of Christ's mission. The thought has been, people in America don't believe in Christ like they used to. The church is declining. People are turning away. So let's rebrand Christ. Let us make him popular with the public sphere once again by changing some of those harsh aspects about him. Let's soften the truth of his word so that he is a little bit more relevant in the 21st century. But what is Jesus' own word? He says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That message will never be popular. That message will never gain attention and will be loved in the media. No, there is no winning friends and influencing people with this message. That he testifies about the darkness that is in the human soul. And so it says in verse 10 that Jesus wasn't going to go up to the feast to make a public display of himself, thinking that he could win over all of these people. No, it says in verse 10 that he went up privately. And although Jesus did not seek attention, he certainly did receive it, as we'll see in this text, as the Jews are, are waiting for him to get up there. Uh, But we find, even with the Jews, another kind of confusion in this text, a confusion about his authority. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. From verse 11 to the end of the chapter, uh, by my count, there are something like 19 question marks that we find in John chapter 7. 19 questions, uh, some of them being genuine questions about his person and work, but many of them being more of that of a prosecutor, questioning a defendant. Uh, That's what we find in the rest of John chapter 7, this open hostility towards Christ. And this was John's way of showing that for some of the Jews, they had made up their mind. They wanted him dead. That's why they were asking where he was. Uh, But for others, they're not quite sure what to do with Christ. So they say, well, Jesus is a good man. Others respond saying, no, 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 he's leading people astray. But whatever they thought about Jesus, they knew that he was the name that must not be spoken in the public sphere because of the the Jews that were after him. And there was no clarity in this crowd that you can see. There's questioning, there's confusion, there's opposition, but no clarity. And so when Jesus gets up, 
to speak. He gets up to teach in the temple at midway through the feast. They're not sure what to do with him. Look at what they say. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They hear Jesus speak for himself and they say, he speaks very different than our teachers. But how can this be? How can this man speak with such power when he's never been to seminary? They think to themselves. One of the most famous Puritans, yet one of the most difficult Puritans to read, is John Owen. If you've ever picked up one of his books, you will know that you need a dictionary by your side and that you will often reread complex. Uh, sentences that are difficult to understand. Uh, He is uh, widely regarded as one of the most brilliant theologians the church has ever had. Uh, Yet, John Owen uh, had a great appreciation of this uneducated preacher, an uneducated preacher whose name was John Bunyan. And so King Charles asked him one day, allegedly, Why do you enjoy John Bunyan's preaching so much when he's never been to Oxford or Cambridge? And Owen said, I would willingly exchange all my learning for the tinkerer's power of touching men's hearts. This is what Owen noticed about Bunyan's preaching. And this is, I think, what the crowds noticed about Christ's preaching. His teaching was not his own. It was grounded in divine authority. Nor was it rooted in the traditions of men. You may know something of the rabbinical teaching method back in those days, that when a rabbi would get up to speak, he might allude to, um, based on a passage, some previous rabbi. He might say something like, well, In John chapter 3, it says this, but Rabbi Levi says this, and Rabbi Abraham says this, and he quotes and quotes and quotes, not really getting at the heart of the meaning of the passage, but rather establishing, here are all the different kinds of interpretations over the years. But Jesus' preaching was nothing like that. He would speak directly to people and apply the word of truth to their hearts. He knew the hearts of men, and so when he spoke... It came with authority. It was the kind of authority that the scribes did not have. It's the kind of authority that often preachers wish they could have, that they could speak so directly into men's souls. But Jesus says, My authority is not grounded in the traditions of men, nor is it even grounded in myself, but in the authority that my Father has given me. Look at verse 17. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus gives them the reason why they are confused about his teaching. And it's not what we would expect. You see, we often think that the reason why people have difficulty accepting Christianity, difficulty accepting the truth, is because they haven't heard the right argument. 
or, ha- or perhaps they haven't heard it in an eloquent manner. And that's the problem, is that we, if we just simply get better arguments into people's minds, that they will change. But Jesus here is saying, if someone's will is to do God's will, then they will believe what I am saying. This had to have pierced right to the hearts of these Jews in the crowd. He's saying to them plainly, even publicly and harshly, you can't make up your minds about me because your will is not to do God's will. The reason why you won't accept my teaching is not because you think it's wrong, it's because you can't think that it's right. You won't allow for it to be true. What he's saying about them is essentially that their hearts, their law and pious traditions of men, they're nothing more than whitewashed presentations of a rebellious will. That's what Jesus is saying about their heart condition. And I wonder if you are here today and have deluded yourself into thinking that your will is not the problem. Atheism is not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of the will. Of course, the solution then is to have a renewed will that desires to know that the God who made us. And so we see confusion about his authority and teaching. And then lastly, we see confusion about his works. I read a book on preaching when I was in college that was titled, As One Without Authority. And it's in that book that the author argues that true biblical teaching and preaching must unburden itself of the necessity of making definitive declarations about the scriptures and about our lives. It says that we shouldn't even tell people how to respond to the truth, nor even say really what the truth is. Rather, the preacher, his duty, according to this book, is to leave things open-ended so that the listener can go home and consider what he or she has heard. Well, as you can tell, Jesus did not abide by such principles. He gets right to the heart of the matter and confronts the crowds with clarity. He cuts through all the noise and addresses why they are there even in the first place, asking him questions. It's because they are confused about his works, specifically the fact that he healed a man on the Sabbath. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. For six months, the healing on the Sabbath had lived rent-free in their minds. That's all they could talk about. If there was a news agency, this would be the headline every single day until it was going to get resolved. That Jesus healed a lame man on the Sabbath. This prophet up in Galilee violated the Sabbath. That's all they could care about. And so Jesus says, well, if you're such good followers of Moses, if you care so much about the law, why do you violate the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Doesn't the law clearly state that it is a sin to kill a man? But the people try to play it off 
as if they didn't know exactly what Jesus was saying to them. What's wrong with you? You have a demon in you. No one is seeking to kill you. And yet John is testifying all throughout this chapter that they were seeking to kill him. And so uh, their astonishment of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath doesn't lead them uh, to truth about his identity, but it leads them to rage. It leads them to anger. And so Jesus is pointing out the foolishness of their confusion. Look at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? I love what Jesus is doing here. He's using the law of Moses to demonstrate that they, even, they haven't even given the slightest of considerations about the meaning of this miracle. If it was lawful in the Old Testament under that administration of the law for a man to be circumcised on the Sabbath because that right, that Old Testament right signaled that the man belonged to the Lord and his people. And so, yes, of course it was acceptable. It was devoting a man to the Lord by this Old Testament right. And yet, they haven't even considered what Jesus was saying in his miracle of making a whole man's body well. They haven't even thought how about what Jesus was saying in that miracle, that he was healing a man, he was devoting a man to himself by healing him, making him well. And all they could think about was whether or not he had violated the Sabbath. And of course we know the truth. And of course Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath by this miracle. And yet that's all that they could think about. They weren't giving consideration to Christ's nature, his identity. It was just to make them angry. So Jesus is saying to them, your anger is not justified. Your confusion is not warranted. And look at what he says in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This verse, in so many ways, summarizes the whole point of this passage. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. His brothers judged him wrongly, thinking that Jesus should gain glory before the cross. The crowds judged him wrongly, wondering how he could have this kind of authority, not considering that he was from the Father. And the Jewish leaders judged him wrongly because they, all they could think about was whether or not he had violated the Sabbath. You see three ways that they have gone wrong, that they have not judged him properly. But Jesus stands before you this day and says the same thing to you. Judge with right judgment. Have you been able to answer the most important question of human history? Who is Jesus? In this text, you can find all kinds of answers for that that are still represented in the world today. He's just a good man. No, he leads people astray. No, he has a demon. But what do you say about 
Christ. Who is he to you? And how do we even know if we are judging Christ with right judgment? Well, two more things before we close our time this morning. If, you, if we are to judge with right judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ, we need two things. First, as you can see, we need new eyes. I think there's something really interesting underneath the surface of this text that goes beyond just all of the confusion that we find on top, and it's this. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and not one person notices the significance of the moment. They have not even considered what is meant and what is signaled by Christ's appearance at this Old Testament feast. You see, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, of course, it looked back to the Exodus. It looked back to how God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt to the promised land. And yet, all throughout the prophetic material that we find in the prophets, we find an anticipation of a second Exodus where God would send his Messiah into the world to deliver his people from bondage to slavery to sin. No one was considering that, that there was a new age that was dawning where God's blessings would pour down from heaven and where their cup would be full, where they would experience the fullness of the Spirit's ministry in their lives. No one had thought about it. And so when Jesus comes to this festival, remember how John describes Jesus' incarnation? In John 1, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And here Jesus is, the true tabernacle of God, walking in and among the tents, all pointing to him, and yet the people cannot see it. This is why we need new eyes. We must see him with the Spirit's eyes. And you can be in here this morning and sit through sermon after sermon, having Christ proclaimed to you day after day, and miss it. It's entirely possible. This is why we must go to the Father and ask for his spirit. Lord, give me eyes to see Jesus Christ. So first, we need new eyes. And second, if we are to judge with right judgment, we need a new heart. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will judge with right judgment. But if we can at least judge ourselves rightly, We know that our will is often not to do God's will. In fact, our will is set against him. And that's the condition of humanity. But this is what makes the good news of Jesus Christ so sweet to sinners like you and me. By Christ's word and spirit, he does make people born again. He does give them a new heart and a new will. And you don't have to look any further than Jesus' own brothers in this story. It says that his brothers did not believe in him. But if you go to Acts chapter 1, when all the disciples are gathering together in the upper room, who's there? 
who's among the disciples? It says, Mary and Jesus' brothers. Now, what happened in their hearts that changed them? Well, I think it's because they actually saw the mission unfold. That the Messiah must go to the cross to suffer. And after three days, rise again victoriously over death. And that they might have life and salvation. You see, those brothers understood that Jesus' heart, his mind was set towards the cross. And they finally understood it. They finally got it. Because this is what God does. He can make a man, a woman, new by his spirit. And that's your hope this day. If you do not trust in Christ, he can change you. If you only would call to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending your son into this world. And Lord, we all know that the darkness is indeed great, not just outside of us, but inside of us. And Lord, we thank you that he is the light of the world who shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us illumination, that our will would be to do your will, that we might glorify Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.